I'll invite you to turn with me this morning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. We began a series last uh, Sunday morning that we've entitled Our Authority in Christ. And we want to continue along the lines of uh, that teaching. And we're going to use Luke chapter 10 and verse 19 as a text scripture. But I want to read down through, uh, well, I want to read verses 19 and 20 this morning. The context of this is Jesus has sent out the 70. He gave them specific instructions. He told them to heal the sick. He told them to preach the gospel. He told them to to do all the, the works, the same works that he did. But specifically, the Bible does not tell us one word about casting out devils. Now, I don't believe that's uh, meant to, um, to, in, to imply or, or to infer in any way that Jesus is saying, don't do that work. It's just something that, that wasn't mentioned. The 70 returned to Jesus and said, Lord, we found out that even the devils are subject to us in your name. So the implication is, I mean, if we have an accurate translation and account of everything that was said and done in this uh, situation, the implication is when they started using the name, they found out that it went even further than they expected that it might for them. Jesus responded and said, uh, well, I guess we better start in verse 18. He said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. In other words, he's saying the reason that the name of Jesus works is because it's above Satan who has been cast out of heaven. Folks, you need to realize something. Satan is a defeated foe. When Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, tempted Eve, deceived her into obeying him, Satan was a defeated foe. He had no authority here on the earth. The only way that he could gain authority is by deceiving them about who they were and what they had so that they would then obey what he influenced them to do instead of obeying what God had already said. That was the point we, uh, we looked at last week. And if you weren't with us, then we'll encourage you to get the tape or the, the download the, the MP3, however it works for you, uh, of the teaching that we did last week about authority and where Satan got his authority. But Jesus is telling us, Jesus is showing us that even for those who are not sons of God, See, it's real easy for the church world to sit back and say, well, Jesus did all the things he did because he was the son of God. These guys are casting out devils in his name and they're not sons of God. Why does it work? It can't work because he's the son of God. It works because he has the life of God that he's transferring to them in his name. Now, they don't have the life of God, so why would the life of God work for them? Because he has it and he gives them his name to use. So they, he said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. And then he tells them the extent of their authority. Verse 19, Behold, I give unto you power. Now the word power is in verse 19 twice. It's two different Greek words. First word is the most should be literally translated authority. It means delegated power. Behold, I give unto you delegated power or authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power. Here's a different word. It means ability. And over all the power of the enemy. And... Nothing shall by any means hurt you. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Folks, he's saying that he's giving the disciples. Now, I grew up in a church. I'll go a little bit further into this. Scriptures like this were totally ignored. I grew up in a Baptist church, saved when I was uh, just before I was six years old. Grew up in a Baptist church. I was a good Baptist kid. I didn't smoke, but other than that, I was a good Baptist guy. <laughs> And we'd get to scriptures like this and just absolutely pass over them and leave the idea 
The church left me the idea, and I'm not criticizing the specific church that I grew up in. I'm not criticizing the Baptist denomination. Everybody's different. I, I, you know, whatever. I'm just talking about my own experience. But they'd pass over scriptures like this and say, well, that was the disciples. Everything was for somebody else. I remember thinking that one day. My goodness, seems like the whole Bible's for somebody else. <laughs> I figured that much out as a kid. But Jesus is saying that the authority that he delegated in his name, the authority that was overall the ability, the power of the enemy, would enable you to live free from harm any measure, any means, any way that the devil tries to bring it. It wouldn't work against you. Now, that's what Jesus is saying. You can call him a liar if you want to. You can say it's for somebody else. You can make it whatever excuse you want to. Jesus is saying that's the authority that he gave the disciples. Folks, I want you to understand something. The disciples were servants because they didn't have the life of God in them. You're a child of God. So if you want to try to make the argument that God treated his servants better than he treats his children, have at it. I want to be there in heaven when you try to tell God about that one. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means, by any means, by any means. That means sickness, because sickness is a means. Sickness won't hurt the person that operates in the authority that Jesus has given us, because it's a means of the devil. Poverty will not hurt the child of God who's operating in authority, because it's a means of the devil. Depression won't hurt the child of God. It will have no effect upon the child of God who's operating in authority because it's a means of the devil. That's what by any means means. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, verse 19, he goes on to say, notwithstanding. He's saying, now, all this is true, but. Well, I knew there was going to be a but in there. There's always a but with a good promise from God, isn't there? Well, let's see what the one... <laughs> thank you. Let's see what this one is. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. He is saying it's not the thing to get happy about because the devil is subject to you. The thing to get happy about is that your names are written in heaven. Now, is Jesus, has Jesus changed topics? Then why in the world does he talk about don't rejoice because the devils are subject to you? I mean, the church sings songs about that. He's under my feet. Whenever I say go, he goes. The church sings all kinds of songs about that. Why? Jesus said, don't rejoice about that. What is he saying? Is he saying that's not something to recognize? Well, if it wasn't something to recognize, why did he tell us? He's not saying don't know this, don't be aware of this, don't make this a part of your understanding. He's not saying any of that stuff. He's saying don't rejoice about that. Rejoice because your name's written in heaven. What is he trying to get across to us? He's saying authority is based on relationship. That's the only reason why he puts these things together. He's saying rejoice because your name's written in heaven. The authority is because your name's written in heaven. That does away with the idea about the disciples, doesn't it? This being special power of theirs. Now, folks, in uh, about this time of year in 1988, it was uh, early March of 1988, my life changed. I was uh, 22 years old. I'd grown up in the Baptist church and, and uh, uh, graduated high school, gone to college, um, had, had just a little bit left of college to go, and uh, uh, done all kinds of things, made my own plans, tried to follow my own plans, disappointed myself with my own plans, you know, normal life, you know? 
And from the time that I was, um, well, I, I remember it specifically when I was an early teenager. I don't know if it was any time before that, but we'll say in my teenage years, I was frustrated, miserable. I knew God on the inside of me, but I started operating in guilt. I knew that there were things that the, the church was certainly telling me, here's, here's what not to do, here's what not to do, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and for heaven's sakes, don't go to the prom. And, uh, and all of these things, all of these do's and don'ts, and, and any one of them sends you to hell in, in an instant, you know? I mean, uh, except you rededicate, and that's, uh, rededicate your life, and that's why we rededicate, had rededication services every Sunday morning. Same people, you know. After a while, I just got self-conscious about, I just went last week, people were going to see me, and it became one of these things where the kids would sit up in the balcony and look around and say, oh, well, if they're down there, we know what they must have been doing. So I was living in this guilt. I was living in this, this defeated Christian life that is just racked by guilt. And I couldn't stand it. And so I went back and forth. I did the same roller coaster ride that so many people do. They try to do good, try to do good, try to do good, give it their best, do good for a couple of days, and then stumble and fall right back where they were before. And now you're down in the hole. And so then you give up. Say, so just forget it. So then you go out and you start living any way you want to and forget about trying to do the right thing and all this kind of stuff. And then that makes you miserable. And so then you repent and you try to come back. And I, folks, I got to tell you, at 22 years of age, I thought if this is it, if this is all there is, then I need to just set God off on the shelf, just let him be my insurance so that I don't go to hell when I die, but live my life and forget about the rest of it. And that's, at the, that's the point where I was at. Now, in, in uh, early March of 1988, I um, uh, had become acquainted with Brother Hagen through my, my father's illness. My dad had been diagnosed with uh, cancer of the kidneys. And um, the doctors had, had done different things and, and, and said they were going to do different other stuff. And, and uh, so he started grabbing at straws. It, it included the uh, removal of a kidney and all this kind of stuff that the doctors were saying they're going to have to do. And so he turned to God. Not because he really cared about God. He just heard somebody had a healing ministry. And so he said, let's give that a try. And so he did. And so we found out about Brother Hagin's ministry. And, and uh, so he started doing different things. And we started listening to some tapes. And, and uh, he wanted my brother and I in on this. And, and, and we did to some degree. And uh, I'm kind of, you know, half listening to some of the things I'm hearing. and hearing Brother Hagin speak on faith and that type of stuff. So anyway, my dad uh, uh, had gone in for the kidney operation and found out that the, 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 the doctors were amazed because they found out that the kidney had been encapsulated with a cancerous tumor, but it hadn't invaded the kidney. And so all they had to do was wind up surgically stripping this thing away. He didn't lose a kidney. Everything was great. Well, he was just, you can imagine how happy he was. God is a healing God. But now my dad's in this same back and forth thing after the fact. About 1978, they diagnosed, uh, just a month or two before this uh, time that I'm talking about, they had found uh, cancer in his lungs. He had been a smoker all of his life. From the time he was 12 years old, he'd smoked a couple packs a day. It was a cool thing to do back then, and, and uh, he had just kept it up all of his life. He was uh, 40, I guess he'd been about 45 years of age in 1978. And um, so now he's reaching out to God again for healing. He doesn't have any confidence for it, though, because he knows he hadn't lived right. Since God had done the great thing for him, he had been on this back and forth thing, and, and so he was, he was really grabbing. He was struggling. So we decided that we would go to a meeting that Brother Hagin had in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. 
we were in Birmingham, Alabama, and that's about the closest Brother Hagin ever got to, uh, to where we were, or at least that we knew about it. And so we went for the purpose of my dad to get there and to be in healing lines. And, and like I said, he's just reaching out, struggling, trying to grab for something on God. Didn't have any confidence, didn't know anything about faith, didn't know anything about believing in his heart. And ultimately, in, uh, 19, uh, in 1980, in May of uh, 1980, first couple of days of May of 1980, he succumbed to lung cancer. But in, uh, in March of 1978, I was 22 years of age, and I let my dad talk me into going to this thing. He said, now, you're going to have to pay your own way. So I had a choice. I, I, I didn't know anything about being led by the Spirit of God, but there was something on the inside of me that said, you've got to go. And I put that off, and I thought, well, that's just because I'm trying to help my dad and, and you know, all the things surrounding that. But I knew at the time there's more to it than that. I didn't know what there was to it, but I knew there was something more than that. I knew there was something I had to go. So instead of paying my rent, I used the money to go to this meeting. Now, I'm not recommending that for anybody, but it changed my life. It was the only way I could get there. So I did and uh, went to this meeting, and I heard Brother Hagin tell a story. And this story specifically, forgive me for taking so long to set it up, but this story changed my life. Because as I said, I'm going in with this back-and-forth, wishy-washy, mealy-mouthed Christianity, do right but don't know how, that was creating a miserable existence for me even at an early age, young age. I heard Brother Hagin tell a story during this, uh, this uh, seminar that he had. And here's the story. He said that when he was pastoring, this was about when he was uh, 30 years old, I think it was, he was pastoring, the last church he pastored, he had a Sunday school teacher or Sunday school superintendent. His name was Brother Haynes. And Brother Haynes worked out, this was in uh, Texas, out in the oil fields of Texas. And he said Brother Haynes uh, was working on uh, the pumper. And I don't know too much about oil equipment, but anyway, some way or another, he fell down into the rigging, the machinery of the, uh, of the, the oil pump. And they thought he was dead. By the time the call went out and the family got there and Pastor Brother Hagen, as his pastor got there, uh, they had him laid out on the ground. They had the sheet pulled up to his neck. They were ready to pull it over his head. He said when he got there, he, th- he thought he was dead. So when, the, when he got there, the doctor's leaning over him, Brother Haynes, and, and um, the doctor saw Brother Hagen and, and, you know, brought him over to him, you know, waved him down to where he was and, and said, uh, Brother Hagen, uh, uh, or, or I guess Brother Hagen first asked, he said, is he dead? He said, well, no, he said, I thought he was. But he's barely hanging on to life, but he can't survive. Just can't survive. He, he's just been, his internal injuries, we don't have no idea what they are, but, but it's just too, too great for him to survive. He said, take his wife off to the side and prepare her because there's no way he can live. So Brother Hagen got up and went over to where Sister Haynes was, and she was standing there with some others and family members or friends or whatever, and they're all trying to comfort her while the doctor is doing the, what he can for, for her husband. And Brother Hagen walked up. Before he could say anything, she said, they don't think Daddy's going to live, do they? And he said, no, they don't. And she said, isn't it good that we've got inside information? <laughs> now, the information she's talking about is inside the Bible. Folks, that's, that's the way to be prepared for a problem. When you've got to try to talk somebody into it in the middle of a difficulty, you're behind the eight ball on that one. So anyway, Brother Hagin said, yes, sister, we do. We have inside information. We'll just agree that he'll live. And so they did. They just took hands right there, just very quietly. We agree in the name of Jesus that he'll live and not die in the name of Jesus. Well, they left him there on the ground for about an hour, and he kept hanging on, kept hanging on. The doctor says, I don't understand it. They wouldn't move him because they knew that would kill him. 
And so finally the doctor says, well, he said, the, the hospital is about 35 miles away in Tyler, Texas. He said, um, I have no idea how he survived up to this point, but what we're going to do is we're going to put him in the ambulance. I'll ride with the ambulance up to the, the limits of the, the town or, you know, his jurisdiction, whatever, where he lived. And he said, and then I'll give him one final shot and then tell the, the ambulance driver to just drive as fast as he can and get him to the hospital. We called ahead. This was certainly before the days of cell phones, but they had gotten word to the hospital to expect him. And here's what's going on. The doctors are waiting for him. He said, Brother Hagen, you ride in the ambulance with him. Brother Hagen said, he must have known that I had something to do with hanging on to him. He said, you ride in the ambulance with him. And he said, we'll just get him there as fast as we can and hope for the best. So that's what they did. By the time they got to the hospital, 35 miles away, the doctors were there. They were prepared. They got him. They got him into the, the hospital room. This was before they had any such thing as intensive care. But, they, uh, but the, the best thing they could do in those days is they had him under an oxygen tent. You don't see any of those anymore, do you? They had him under an oxygen tent, and they had a full-time nurse assigned to his room. He had this, this uh, big room where he was by himself, and, and nobody else was with him because of the critical nature of his injuries and, and that type of thing. So Brother Hagen stayed with him, stayed with him for three days and nights in the hospital. Brother Hagen said, I knew I was the only thing holding on to him. He said, I'd send the family home. They'd get, get tired, and when people would get tired, you know, it's easy to start getting in fear. And, and so he said, I, I had to keep, keep them out of the hospital room when they started getting in those kind of places. And, and, you know, you go home, rest, I'll stay here. And so about the third night, Brother Hagen is pretty well, pretty well wiped out, you can well imagine. And so... Uh, um, he said that the nurse, he dozed off. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning, the, the, and the, he was awakened by the nurse brushing against his, his knees to get around the bed to see where he, to, to get to him, to check on him and that type of thing. Brother Hagen said, I opened my eyes, and he said, he looked dead. I, I thought, oh, my God, I've, let, I've gone to sleep and let him die. So she, he asked the nurse, he said, is, is he dead? She said, no, I thought he was, but I can tell you this much, he'll never make it till 7 o'clock in the morning. So Brother Hagin said he got up from his chair, went out into the hall, and he said just without anybody being able to hear, he said this was a whisper. He said, if you'd been standing next to me, you wouldn't have heard me. He said, I don't know what caused me to pray like this. He said, I never prayed like this before in my life. But he said, I said these words to the Lord. Lord, this man's my Sunday school superintendent. Now, he's not just somebody in name only. I've had people, other people in those positions where they just wanted the title and they did nothing. This guy really does the job. He's out visiting people when they don't show up and, and when they're missing, and, and he's just a great help to the church. He said, I need him in the church. Now, you're the chief shepherd, and I'm the under-shepherd. That means if I need him, you need him. He said, so I'm not going to let him die. He went through three different things. He talked about how he was uh, such a help in the church. He talked about he's a young man. He's just in his, uh, what was he, 40-something years old, 48 years old. He's too young to die. And the third thing is he puts more than uh, 20% of his income into the church. He helps the church. He's a real support to us. I'm just not going to let him die. Brother Hagin went back in the room. It didn't take very long. You know, it's just a minute and a half prayer, something like that. He said, never prayed like that before. Went back in the room. He said, I'm feeling pretty good. Go back in the room. His color's back. He looks good. I'm thinking, all right, praise the Lord. <laughs> this worked out real well. So he sits down in the chair. And about 4 o'clock in the morning, he dozes off again. And nurse brushes against him going around. And he looks dead again. He's thinking, oh, my goodness. I've gone to sleep and let him die. Gets back out in the hallway and goes through the same three things again. Lord, I'm not going to let him die. Same three reasons. The Bible says, plead your case. Come, let us plead together. Plead your case before the Lord. It's a good thing this guy had a case he, Brother Hagin could plead, isn't it? 
That's more true than you're giving acceptance to, folks. There's some people in the church, you couldn't plead their case if you tried. There's no case to plead. So anyway, 4 o'clock, he goes back out in the hallway, does the same exact thing, goes through the same three points, does exactly the same thing, comes back in, stays awake till 7 o'clock. The doctor comes in at 7 o'clock in the morning, starts stirring around, and, and, and he's real excited. He says, well, my, my, my goodness, he's come out of it. He's come out of it. He's, come, he's been in shock this whole time. Now he's come out of it. He said he's, gonna, he's got a 50-50 chance. He might make it now. Brother Higgins jumping, turning flips on the inside, he said. He said 50% chance, nothing. This guy's got a 100% chance because of what we prayed. Well, long story short, the guy starts uh, recovering. He starts getting better, and it takes him several weeks, probably four weeks in the hospital before he's able to come out. And, and uh, there's some residual things that, that the x-rays showed that his, his uh, left arm, he was left-handed. Residual effects were that his left arm was shattered, his elbow was shattered. They didn't know this was, uh, they knew this much while he was still under uh, uh, in the coma, or whatever it was that they called it, they didn't know whether to, to make his arm stiff or keep it bent like this because he'd never be able to use it again. So they just kind of put it in an angle. But even even years later, when they do an X-ray, an annual X-ray on this guy, it showed that his elbow was absolutely shattered in a thousand pieces. Said he'd never be able to use it. Insurance company paid him twenty-five hundred dollars for the loss of the use of that arm, and he's just moving it all around. He could write. He could do everything else in the world. But here's what I wanted to tell you. Here's the part of the story that, uh, that changed my life. And he's, Brother Hagin said that some weeks later, four or five, six weeks later, whatever it was, when the guy was able to come back to church, he stood up and gave a testimony uh, to the congregation. And he said this. He said, now, first of all, he said, I want to thank you all of you for praying. He said, I appreciate what you've done for me and for my family during this time. This, you know, it's been real difficult on, on my family and stuff. He said, it hadn't been hard on me at all. He said, don't ever feel sorry for people when they, Christians, when they're in a coma or a condition like that. He said, the last thing I remember is falling. He said, I don't remember hitting anything. Next thing I remember, I woke up and I was in the hospital. He said, but there was something else that happened in the meantime. He said, I must have died because I saw heaven. I heard the angelic choir. He said, I saw the saints robed in white. And he said, I saw Jesus. He said, just about the time where I was going to fall down on my face and tell Jesus how much I loved him and how glad I was to see him, Jesus said, you'll have to go back. (laughs) He said, I said to him, Lord, I don't want to go back. He said, you get to heaven, you start seeing how things really are there. He said, you don't want to go back. He said, it doesn't matter what the conditions are that you left or the circumstances that you, by which you left. He said, I didn't want to go back. And Jesus said the second time, you'll have to go back. He said, I said the second time, Lord, I don't want to go back. I'm here now. I want to stay. And the third time, the Lord said to him, you'll have to go back. You'll have to go back to the earth. And the third time, Brother Haynes said, but I don't want to go back. And the Lord said, well, you'll have to. Brother Hagin won't let you come. (laughs) And he said, Brother Haynes gave testimony to the church. He said, the Lord reached down and he grabbed something. He said, I never, never noticed it before while we were talking, but he reached over and there was this curtain-like thing and, uh, and he pulled it back. And when he pulled it back, he said, I could hear Brother Hagin's voice. And Brother Hagin said, Lord, I'm not going to let him die. And Jesus said to him, see, Brother Hagin won't let you come. <laughs> well, now, Brother Hagin 
told us later on, and, and the story that he was telling there in 1978, as he told other people many times since then, he even told his church later on about it. He had never told anybody in the world about that prayer, not even his wife. How would anybody know that he prayed that prayer? How would anybody know that Brother Hagin said, I'm not going to let him die? Now, Brother Haynes didn't say he heard any other part of the prayer, but he heard that part. I'm not going to let him die. Now, get what he's saying. I'm not going to let him die. He didn't pray, I don't want him to die. There's a lot of prayers prayed like that. Oh, Lord, don't let this happen. Oh, Lord, we don't want this. Brother Hagin prayed, Lord, I'm not going to let him die. He said, I've never prayed anything like that before in my life. He said, looking back at it, I have to assume now that it was the Spirit of God that was prompting me to do that. But he said, it's not like it's, it was anything that was planned. I've had some prayers like that where the Holy Ghost prompted me to pray. And afterwards, I thought, whoa, I hope that's okay with God. Now, what is that? Now, folks, that story changed my life. That story changed everything about what I pursued in my life. Because I finally heard something. I'd heard teaching on faith. I'd heard Brother Hagin saying some things, a little bit on how to be led by the Spirit, not much, but a little bit. But when I heard that story and recognized, and the, the topic of Brother Hagin's seminar that week was the authority of the believer. When I heard somebody say, not just read the Scriptures and here's what I think, but telling from an experience position. Here's what I did. Didn't even know what I was doing at the time. But here's what I did, and here's the authority that God has given man. That changed everything about me. That was everything I'd been looking for since the time I was a teenager. That changed everything for me. Because now I'm hearing something that satisfies what my heart had been trying to tell me all along. All the time when, the, when the, the, the church was telling me, we're just a worm and our righteousness is as filthy rags and all this other kind of stuff, my heart is saying, that's not right. But I don't know anything. I'm just a kid. I don't know anything. I don't know what the Bible says to refute it. I don't, I'm certainly not in a position, wouldn't have been in a position even if I had known what the Bible says. I wouldn't have come back to the church leaders and said, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Here's what the Bible says. Give me that chance today and see what would happen. But I sure wouldn't have done it then. But when I heard something that told me that God has given us authority, that changed everything about my life. It changed the course of my life. That story changed the course of my life. Now turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 1. Here's what I had to deal with from that point forward. We've got some guy that, of course, my church was saying was a nut. By the way, do you realize that people said Jesus was a nut? It used to bother me when people said things like, oh, they're crazy. They've got crazy doctrine. They're a cult over there. They've got all kinds of stuff. That used to bother me. I just realized we're in Jesus' company now. And as long as we've got scriptural evidence and a scriptural foundation for everything that we're saying and doing, what do we care what somebody else thinks? By the way, the ones that are always saying that are the ones that are in that miserable life that I was in before I found out. I've already been there. I've got an advantage over them because I've lived the life that they're living and didn't like it. Now I'm living the life of victory and like it a lot. So I'm going to let what somebody that doesn't know anything about victory say about me who has found victory. Oh, those spirit-filled, those tongue-talking people, they're crazy. Yeah. Well, I used to be in their shoes one day too. 
I used to be in the, the position where you didn't have enough power to blow your nose. <laughs> Spiritually. Where you had to excuse the Bible and explain away Scripture because there was no evidence of power in your life. Now I'm on the other side of the fence where I have the opportunity to operate in the power of the name of Jesus and the power of the Word of God. And I'm supposed to let them tell me I'm nuts? Oh, you mean you speak in tongues, one guy said one time? Here's how I conquered that. Businessman said, you mean you speak in tongues? And I said, absolutely. Don't you? That changed the whole tenor of the conversation, folks. Because now he's on the defensive. He knows it's in the Bible. He's already told me he's a Christian. He knows it's in the Bible. Now he's got to come up with a defense for why it's not for us today. Well, I'm the evidence that it is for us today. It's happening with me. Maybe you, ought to need, maybe you need to study a little further. Huh? <laughs> not me. I'm not ashamed anymore. I used to be. Lord, forgive me. But I used to be. But not anymore. But here's the problem I had with this authority thing. I hear Brother Hagin's story. It certainly wasn't an experience of mine yet. I've had some similar since then, but not anything, you know, exactly the same. But at that point in time, how are you going to explain away the condition of the church and the story this guy's telling? I mean, there's, a, there's obviously a big gap between the way the church is living and what he's showing in the Bible and saying you can live by. How do you reconcile that? How are you going to do it? Well, first and foremost, we're going to have to go by what the Bible says in other places. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. You can't build a doctrine out of just any one verse, no matter what that one verse says. Which is exactly what a lot of people try to do with the idea that tongues have passed away. They'll take a verse of Scripture over in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where it says tongues will cease. It doesn't say tongues have ceased. It says tongues will cease. And they'll say, yeah, well, see, tongues have passed away. Well, you can't build a doctrine out of that. Paul says tongues will cease. At the same time, knowledge ceases. Now, I know that's already occurred for a lot of Christians. <laughs> But the point in time that Jesus, that Paul is talking about is when Jesus appears for the church and we are known as we, we know as we are known. When knowledge will be superseded by truth. See, Paul said himself, we only know in part. We see in part and we know in part. There's coming a day you're not going to know in part. You're going to know just like God knows you. That's when tongues will cease. Same time knowledge ceases. So what did Paul say? Paul wrote to the church in the, to the Ephesians, and if it belongs to the Ephesians, it belongs to everybody else. Paul wrote some things that have to do with authority. And it was a prayer that he prayed for the church over and over and over again. And the whole prayer is about authority. The whole prayer is about authority. It's about finding out what belongs to you. And the ultimate, the, the end result of what he talks about is authority. Now, let's stop and imagine and, and consider who's doing the talking here. What does Paul know about authority? Well, Paul cast the devil out of the little girl in Acts chapter 16. Uh, Paul preached the gospel in Lystra in Acts chapter 14 and healed the crippled guy. So he knows something about authority over the devil and he knows something about authority over sickness, obviously, because God used him in that way. We also notice that, uh, that in Paul's ministry, the last time that he spoke to the, uh, 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 I think it was the Ephesian church, he had this big long service and it went hour after hour after hour and some guy was sitting, some young man was sitting up in the, in the windowsill and fell down and died during the middle of his service. 
Now, folks, I don't know. I've never had that happen. But I would imagine that would interrupt your service to, you know, and not in a positive way. But Paul, on that occasion, fell on the young man and raised him from the dead. So he must know something about authority in that respect. Now, folks, if I look at all the things that Jesus did in his ministry, raising the dead has got to be the top of the bar. I mean, can you get any more powerful than raising the dead? You can make excuses for setting somebody free. You can make excuses for healing the sick. You can make all kinds of excuses. Yeah, well, okay, God does that. But you get somebody that raises the dead, how much better can you do than that? Death is the the devil's ultimate power. So you get somebody that breaks the power of death, and brings them back from the dead, what greater display of power can you get? So Paul's had this experience in all these things. So he must know something about what he's going to pray. What did he pray? Ephesians chapter 1. Paul said in verse 16, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That means he's praying this over and over and over again. Right? Well, if it's okay for Paul to pray it over and over and over again for the church, then it's okay for you and me to pray it over and over and over again for ourselves. But he's praying about, and and let me just make this comment. These prayers in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 3 is Paul making supplication. There's a lot of misunderstanding in the body of Christ about supplication. Well, the Bible talks about prayers and intercessions and supplications. Most charismatic people say anything you pray in tongues is intercession. No, it's not. You can't intercede for a Christian because to intercede means to stand in between two others. There is nothing in that's dividing or separating a Christian from God. No matter how backslidden they are, you can't intercede for another Christian because there's no separation. They've been joined together with God through Jesus. So you can only make intercession for unbelievers. But what about supplication? Supplication is a prayer that you can pray over and over again, multiple times, just like Paul's praying this, according to the rights and privileges for another believer. And that believer could even be yourself. You can pray numerous times these prayers and other prayers according to things that belong to you, just like Paul prayed these things for the church. He's making supplication. Now, what does he supplicate about? He says, I make mention of you in my prayers, or my supplications, literally, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. That means anything and everything Paul has to say and Paul wants for us to receive as inspired by the Holy Ghost to pray these things. What I mean by that is the Holy Ghost gave him the prayer. Just like the Holy Ghost inspired Brother Hagin to pray that prayer for Brother Haynes, the Holy Ghost inspired Paul to pray this prayer. And then the Holy Ghost saved us a record of it so we'd know what he inspired him to pray. So you've got God working on both ends of this thing. You need to realize these are some of the most important prayers that you could ever pray for yourself. They are spirit-inspired prayers. And everything about this prayer, everything about what God wants for you is based on revelation in the knowledge of Him. I want to let that sink in a little bit. Everything about what Paul is praying is, is, is based on revelation in the knowledge of God. That means you're not going to find these things out through life experience. You're only going to find these things out in that which reveals God to you. And the only thing, the only two areas or avenues for that are the Holy Ghost and the Word of God. 
He's saying you're only going to know this, these things by what you get from the Holy Ghost and by what you understand of the Word. That God would give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. That the eyes of your understanding, the word understanding is the word spirit, that the eyes of your spirit would be enlightened. That you would know three things. Number one, what is the hope of His calling? Now, folks, I believe this means in a general sense and in a specific sense. I believe God wants you to know the hope of His calling, what His individual will for your life is. But I also believe that God wants us to know generally what belongs to us and what we've been called to do because Jesus has come and made the sacrifice for us. Now, can I ask you a question? We looked, if you were with us last week, you can see very clearly that man was made on the earth, created on the earth to have dominion and authority. Man lost that authority when he obeyed Satan instead of God's commandment. And then Jesus regained that authority. In Matthew 28, he appears after his resurrection. He says, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. So you go into the earth. In effect, Jesus is saying, I'll take care of things in heaven. You take care of things here on the earth. He restored man to authority. Would that not be part of the hope of his calling? Would that not be part of what the the church world, the believers, Christians should know about what they have and who they are? Absolutely. And I would submit to you folks that the very reason that that the church world lives at such a low level compared to what the Bible says we can have, compared to the authority that Jesus gave the disciples, His servants, over all the power of the enemy, the discrepancy between those two positions is the lack of knowledge of who we are the lack of knowledge of the hope of His calling. Do you see where I'm coming from on that? So He prays that the eyes of our spirit would be enlightened so that we'd know what is the hope of His calling, number one. Number two, and what is the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. You have something. You inherited something because of Jesus' sacrifice. Servants don't have inheritances. Servants have jobs. The disciples in Luke chapter 10 had a job. They went and did the job and found out the equipment that they were given to do the job went even further than they thought. And Jesus said, oh, it goes even further than that. You have authority over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. You have an inheritance. As a child of God, you have an inheritance. If your inheritance is less than the equipment for the ser- given to the servants to do the job, then you need to rethink your position. If I had a rich father who gave the servant more than he gave me, I'm going to say, what's up with that, Dad? Wouldn't you? Well, sure. That's why Jesus said, I don't call you servants. I call you friends, partners. Then after he was raised from the dead, he called us children of God. So the second thing is that we would know what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. The third thing is in verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power? That works in us as believers. So so much of the church world is praying for power. You're wasting a prayer. Paul prayed that our eyes would be open to see what the power is that we have already. Oh, we just need more power. Oh, Pastor Mike, we just need a revival of power. No, you don't. You need your eyes open to know what power you have. Why? Because the power you have is going to be described. This power that has already been delivered to the church has been displayed. Verse 20, which He, God, wrought in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead. Now stop and think about that for a minute. He's saying the power that already works in you as a Christian is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Which he brought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Now, what was that power designed to do? The power was designed to raise Jesus from the dead and set him at God's right hand. What is the position of God's right hand? Why is Jesus set down at the right hand of the Father? To sit down indicates the work is finished. Why is he seated at the right hand of God the Father? Because the right hand of God the Father, the right hand of the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, is the position of authority. It's the position of authority. So the power that works in you as a believer is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and gave him all authority. Matthew 28, 18. All authority, King James says power, literally authority, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. That's the power that works in you. Not a different power, not a shadow of that power, not a part of that power, that power. Far above, verse 21, tells you the relationship of God, Jesus' authority with the other powers of the universe, Satan's power specifically. Far above, everybody say far above. Far above. Not a little bit above. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come. Now, I'm not going to take time to try to split these words apart and say, well, this is what principality means, here's what might means, here's what dominion means. Who cares? It's all relative to the power of the devil. It's saying Jesus has authority far above. Far above. All of the devil's power and every name that is named here on the earth. And every name that will be named in the world to come. In other words, Jesus' authority is so much greater then the devil's power, there's no comparison. It's not like the devil and Jesus is in this big struggle. The devil has been defeated. He has no play in this, say in this anymore. Now let me tell you, the Bible says these are the same things that are referred to in Ephesians chapter 6, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But we do wrestle. Well, who do we wrestle against? against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places. We still have to deal with those things. We still come against those things. But let me tell you how that works. You remember the story that we told, the illustration we've used before about the difference between authority and power? The policeman standing in the middle of the intersection directing traffic, he doesn't have the power, he doesn't have the ability to hold even the smallest car back. But he has authority. He's got a badge, he's got a uniform that reflects power, ability that stands behind him. And what he does. The measure of authority is based on the power that stands behind the authority. My brother, who didn't get saved until he was in his 20s, he had, used to have this car. He had a 1973 uh, Roadrunner. Any of you guys remember that? Had the little horn that went beep, beep, that kind of thing. <laughs> He had a 400 and something cubic inch engine in this thing. He talked my grandmother into fronting him the money so he could buy this thing. And I, I have no idea what she was thinking. But anyway, 
He thought he was the baddest guy with the baddest car and all this kind of stuff. I remember specifically, we are sitting at an intersection, and there's a funeral that's coming by. And you remember how everybody used to turn their lights on and had to wait? Policeman's standing out there, and he's holding up traffic. My brother's sitting there, and he starts gunning this thing. Mum! Mum! Policeman just looks over at him like, you're an idiot. My brother is sitting there cussing this cop. He is doing everything in the world. I'm sitting there. I'm thinking, you know, I don't know if I can drive this. If you get thrown in jail, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he's doing all this stuff, just making a fool of himself. Very similar to what he does today. But uh, <clears throat> he may get this. You never know. But anyway, he's sitting there, and I mean, he's just upset, he's impatient, he's, oh, come on, let us buy, come on, how long is this going to go? He's just really upset. Folks, that's exactly what the devil does. He makes a lot of noise, he makes a lot of threats. My brother guns the engine like he's going to run the policeman over. The policeman just looks at him, touches his gun, you know. <laughs> that's exactly how the devil does. The devil has to respect the authority in the name of Jesus from those used by those who know what they have. That's why Paul is praying that we would, our eyes would be open to know what we have. Why does the devil run roughshod over the church? Because they don't know what they have. And if you don't know what belongs to you, you're like the cop standing in the middle of the street with traffic whizzing by in every direction, wondering why don't they stop? Because you've got to use your authority. So the power that already works in you is far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but in that which is to come. Please understand, folks, the power that backs up your authority in the name of Jesus is greater than any name that's in this world. That means sickness. That means cancer. Those are names. That means poverty. That means lack. Those are names. You have authority in the name of Jesus. And the power that backs it up is greater than anything the devil can bring against you in any form. Now I can hear people's thoughts. Oh, I want to believe that, Pastor Mike. Well, quit wanting to believe it and believe it. It's not true because you feel like it's true someday, and then that's when you will start believing it. It's true because the Bible says so, and the Bible can't be a lie. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world. I love that. Not only in this world, but in that which is to come. The name of Jesus will be the greatest thing in the, the, the history of eternity. The history of eternity. I don't even know if that makes sense. <laughs> Verse 22, and, and... Here's what happened when God raised Jesus from the dead and set Him as His own right hand and hath put all things under His feet and gave Him to be the head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. I think the translators did a terrible, terrible job in the way they, they, they framed these verses. The, 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 the message is true. But the way they set it up leaves you thinking Jesus has everything. But folks, please understand, the Bible talks about Jesus the head and the church the body. The church is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. What does that mean? That means the head can't do anything without the body any more than your head can do without your body. 
We wouldn't say of some great person that their head has authority or their head has gained great position, but the rest of their body is insignificant. So much of the church takes the position that, well, I can't do without God, but He can do without me. That'd be like a head sitting in one chair and your body sitting in another trying to figure out who's going to do what. Both are immobilized. The body has to have the head and the head has to have the body. And that's the picture that the Holy Ghost gives us of how the church works together. We're all members of the body. Jesus is the head. So read it with me this way. And it's put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head to the church over all things. The point is the church has been raised to be over all things. Not just that Jesus is raised to be all things. Oh, no, Pastor Mike, I can't accept that. Well, let's keep reading. You will by the time we're done. (laughs) Chapter 2. Now, you know Paul didn't write this in chapter and verse. The translators divided it. Chapter 2, he's talking about the same thing. And you. Now, if you're reading from the King James, you'll notice half he quickened is in italics. You know why? Because there is no verb in verse 1. And you. And you what? And you is being is referring back to a previous action that has taken place that we've already read about in the prayer. He's saying the power of God raised Jesus from the dead and set Him at His own right hand, and you. And you what? You were raised from the dead too. Folks, it's not two separate actions. It's not like the power of God raised Jesus from the dead and then the power of God raised you from the dead. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead raised you from the dead. That's why the gospel is called the good news. That's why the word gospel means good news. The good news is you've already been, the price has already been paid. You've already been raised from the dead if you'll just accept it. Now, if you don't accept it, it doesn't become yours. But it's already done if you'll just simply accept it. That's why it's good news. You don't have to work for it. Oh, I've done so many terrible things. Doesn't matter. It's already been paid for. Yeah, but I've been just a terrible sinner. Shh, don't tell God. See, he already did it. And if you don't talk him out of it, then it's yours. No, it's already yours. That's why all you have to do is accept it by faith. So in verse 1 where it says, and you, it's talking about just as God raised Jesus from the dead, and you. You were raised from the dead too. And you, hath he quickened, or hath he made alive, hath he raised, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. In times past, you walked according to the prince of the power of the air. Did you notice he didn't call him the king? He's talking about the devil. Notice he didn't say the king. Why? Because Jesus stripped him of his authority. He's a prince, dethroned. One who used to have authority. One that still tries to make you think he has some now. One that still has authority over those who don't know who they are in Christ but not for the one who knows. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. Folks, there is a course of this world, and it's not of God. It's being motivated and influenced by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, the unsaved, as well as those believers, those Christians who don't know how to live outside of that up and down, back and forth, in and out, miserable kind of life in the wilderness. 
Among whom, verse 3, we also had our conversation in times past. That's the way it was for us too, wasn't it? In the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. No difference between us and them, except we found Jesus. But God. But God. Who's going to change the situation where we were just like them? But God. Who is rich in mercy. For His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. For by grace are you saved. And, verse 6, has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Folks, please notice the Bible talks about, Ephesians chapter 1 talks about two things. Paul talks about two things that the power of God wrought. Two things that the power of God wrought. He raised Jesus from the dead and set Jesus at his own right hand. It says the same power at the same exact time wrought two other things. He raised you from the dead and set you at his right hand too. Same exact work. You can't say Jesus has more authority at the right hand of God than you do because you and he are part of the same body. The only distinction, only distinction that Jesus made between his authority and yours authority, your authority is he said he'll take care of things in heaven, you take care of things here on the earth. All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Where did Jesus send the church? To heaven? Nope. Sent him into the earth. What's he saying? He's saying I'll take care of things in heaven, you take care of things in the earth. That's why Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Another translation says, whatever you prohibit or refuse to allow here on the earth, God will back you up in heaven. Whatever you allow here on the earth, God will allow that in heaven. Folks, that's true, positive and negative. That means if you refuse to allow sickness, heaven backs you up. But it means if you allow sickness, heaven will let that go too. That's why it's so important for the church to know, for the spiritual eyes to be enlightened or open so that they would know. Now notice verse 7. God has raised us up to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. By the way, which is far above all principality, power, might, and dominion in every name that's named, not only in this world but in that which is to come. That's the place you have too. Verse 7, that in the ages to come, Oh, I love this scripture. This scripture just thrills me from my head to my toes. That in the ages to come. Folks, the church age has been 2,000 years. The age of man has been 6,000 years. And the Bible says there are ages to come. How long is that? I don't know. Sounds like a long time. Eternity is without end. But I want you to understand, with God, that means there's going to be one age, and then it'll come to an end, and then there's going to be another age. And then it'll come to an end, and there's going to be another age. And then there, it'll come to an end, there's going to be another age. For all you folks that get bored doing the same thing over and over again, don't worry. <laughs> There'll be plenty of variety in eternity. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. You know what that literally means? It literally means it's going to take ages for God to show you just how good He is. Yet the church sits around saying, why does God let this happen? Oh, Lord, why aren't you doing something about this? The only part of the church that does that is the part that doesn't know who they are. They don't know the hope of their calling. 
They don't know the riches of the glory of their inheritance in the saints, and they don't know the exceeding greatness of his power that works in us as believers. You find out those things. You start accepting what the Bible says to be true as truth, and you'll start stepping up to, whoa, I never knew God could be this good. And that'll be just a taste of what it'll take God ages to show you about. Folks, you've been risen with Christ. You've been raised up and seated in heavenly places. Now stop and think about that for a minute. Obviously, we're talking about position. Physically, we're still here on the earth. But our position in Christ, being joined together and one with the Father, our position is at the right hand of God the Father. That means everything that Jesus has said, meaning His Word, the Scripture, everything Jesus has said to be true is truth for us. For us. Everything, every commandment Jesus gave, everything Jesus tells us or that the Holy Ghost reveals to us about God's plan is absolute truth. It may not look like truth to us. You may not look like you've been healed by the stripes of, of Jesus, but it's truth that you have been. It may not look like Jesus was made poor for your sakes that you through His poverty might be made rich. It may not look like that to you right now, but it's truth because God said so. How? If you start looking at from from this position... If you start looking at yourself as seated with Christ in heavenly places, oh yeah, but, but Pastor Mike, I'm just the least of the body of Christ. I am just the lowest of the low. If you're a part of His body, then that means the lowest you can get is the soles of His feet. And that's the part that says is far above Satan's power. There's not a part of his body that's straggling behind subject to the devil. It's all been raised to seat and seated together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're seated at, 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 in heavenly places, let's look at it from a different perspective. Think about, imagine yourself in heaven watching things that, as they transpire. God's in heaven looking down at the earth. He sees the devil raising his head. He sees the devil trying to destroy nations. He sees the devil trying to destroy the people of God. He sees the devil doing all these kinds of things. Jesus is sitting there at the right hand. God looks over at Jesus and says, you about ready to go get him? <laughs> Jesus said, yeah, Father, I am, but you know, you said you'd fill the earth with your glory. Yeah, I know. Don't have much to work with, though, down there, do I? <laughs> Jesus says, well, there's some. There's a few folks that are finding out. And those few folks are going to get other people to know who they are too. And God says, yeah, with all the things the devil's working on down there, there's no way he can change my eternal plan. No matter how bad it looks, no matter how bad it progresses to be, there's nothing he can do to change my plan. And then Jesus says, do you want me to pray about this? Now, folks, please understand this is a hypothetical situation. Jesus is not praying at the right hand of the Father. You get this. He's seated. That means his work is done. But he says, should I get my body to pray? God said, yeah, that'd be great. That would be great. What does Jesus do? Does he shout down to the earth and say, hey, would somebody pray? No, we're seated there with him. His desire becomes our desire. Folks, it's only if there's some kind of physical difficulty, 
some kind of paralysis or something like that that's taken hold of somebody for their mind to want something and it has to transmit to their body and they have to focus on making it happen. That's the thing that so many people that are paralyzed with sickness or disease talk about feeling like they're in prison because their mind says do something and the body won't respond. Jesus is not paralyzed, folks. For most of us that are, that are fortunate enough not to be in that kind of paralysis or, or paralyzed condition, situation, we think something and it happens. There's no, there's no travel time. There's no, there's no thinking through. There's no focus. There's no, okay, got to move my right hand. Come on. You can do it. Come on. Come on. No, you think you do. It's an instantaneous thing. That's how Jesus works with his body. So when you pray, you're not praying down here on the earth underneath all this stuff. You're up in heaven with Jesus. When you pray for the rain, Zechariah 10.1, Ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So the Lord shall make bright clouds. The word bright clouds means a display of power. It means a manifestation of His glory. So shall the Lord make bright clouds, display of power, manifestation of glory, and give them showers of rain. That's a move of the Holy Ghost to bring forth grass in the field. That's the precious fruit of the earth. That's people coming into the family of God. When Jesus thinks the church acts, when Jesus speaks, the church acts. For us to pray, we're praying by the instruction of the Word of God. We're praying over the problem, not underneath the problem. When you pray for sickness to be removed from your body, you're not praying under the problem, oh God, please get this off of me, which so much of the church world does. You're praying from the right hand of the Father. You're praying from the position of authority. You're praying down at the problem. You're praying in this manner. You think the devil's going to be able to pull off what Jesus has already accomplished? Seriously? Mr. Devil, you think sickness is going to undo what Jesus has already paid the price for? You really think that's going to happen? When you're praying about your financial situation, oh, there's a mountain of debt, there's a mountain of bills on the table, oh, what are we going to do about all this stuff? Turn it around and realize that you're seated in the right, at the right hand of the Father. You're seated with Jesus in heavenly places. You're praying down about that stuff. You say, Father, I need some help here. We got something to be done here. Jesus already took upon himself the chastisement of our peace. This is already done. This is already part of what belongs to me. This is it. You know, you know the most amazing thing to me? You look at the story of where Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes. Philip comes. Philip says, Master, these guys have been with us for three days and nights. You better send them away so they can get something to eat. Jesus says, give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. What's the first thing Philip does? He checks the bag. Folks, there's 5,000 men there, much less the women and children. Maybe 15,000 people. If it's like most situations, you'd have the women and children would outnumber the men two to one. So you got maybe 15,000 people. And what does Philip do? He checks the bag. Feed 15,000 people. Well, let's see. What do we got here? I'm sorry, Jesus. And that's exactly what so much of the church does. The Lord's put something on their heart and they check and see what they have. So Jesus says to Philip, you give them something to eat. And Philip says, oh, you, we don't have anything. If we had 200 pennies worth, that wouldn't be enough to feed everybody. I guess that's a lot of money. I don't know. It doesn't sound like much, but I guess it's a lot of money to them. He's saying, we don't have enough money to buy food. And if we did have enough money to buy food, where would we buy enough for everybody like this? And then somebody speaks up and says, here's a little boy's lunch. 
Now I imagine Philip standing there thinking, are you crazy? Didn't you hear me? We don't have enough money to buy food for everybody, and you're going to bring me a little boy's lunch? Now some people trying to explain away the miracles of the Bible say, well, you know, fishes and loaves were bigger back then. Can't you see this one little kid dragging this loaves, these loaves and fishes around? Folks, the point is simply this. When you recognize the authority that you have in Christ Jesus, it doesn't matter what the circumstances say you have. Quit trying to measure what God told you to do by what you're able to do. Why? Because all authority has been given unto Jesus, and Jesus said, whatever you bind on the earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven. You've been risen with Christ. Wouldn't it be a silly thing for Jesus to complain at the right hand of the Father saying, I just don't feel like we got this done. I just don't feel like we're able to, to pull this off, Lord. Father, you know, I was faithful. I just, I just don't understand why things don't, don't look any better than they look. That's exactly what the church does. You've been raised to be seated with, in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, and the church complains about, oh, I don't know why it's happening like this. Oh, my goodness, I, I, I just don't understand. God's Word says that He'll deliver us, but I guess He must have some purpose in all this. He does for you to grow up and wise up and figure out what belongs to you. He's not trying to teach you through circumstances. He's trying to teach you through His Word. The circumstances come because people won't accept to be true what is already established. And you hath He quickened and has raised us up together. Let's all stand. If you don't stand up, I won't quit. Oh, my goodness. I already went way over time. Oh, well. Some of you came late today this morning anyway, so you already got your time on the front end, didn't you? Let's lift our hands and thank God because His Word is true. He's quickened you just like He quickened Jesus. He's made you alive just like He made Jesus alive. He's raised you up just like He raised Jesus up. Jesus is not having a problem at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is not worried about circumstance at the right hand of the Father. So why are you? What part of all power is given unto me is not available to you? Jesus said, whatever you bind on the earth, whatever you refuse to allow on the earth, whatever you prohibit here on the earth, He'll back you up in heaven. Whatever you allow here on the earth, He'll back you up on that too. The choice is yours. The choice is yours. Oh, Father, we worship you. We magnify your holy name. We thank you because your word is true. We thank you, Father, that the Holy Ghost is working on our spirits to open our eyes to see what belongs to us. Father, thank you that the name of Jesus and the power of God that already resides within us is greater than any sickness and any disease. It's greater than any depression or any problem that comes against us. It's greater than any lack. Father, our, our supply, our sufficiency is not based on what we have. It's based on you living in us. Father, we take authority over every work of the devil that would come against us. We take authority in the name of Jesus over the sickness that would attack our bodies. We take authority in the name of Jesus over the, the, the depression, over the oppression, over the attacks that the enemy would bring to us. In every area, attacks on the job. We take authority over those things that the devil would do to hinder the work that you've given us to do, the commands that you've given us, Father. We take authority over the devil's power. 
in the name of Jesus to cause those things to come to pass that you've spoken to us about in times past. We take authority over lack, Father, in the name of Jesus. We take authority over it. We don't pray about it. We take authority over it in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Father, that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. We thank you, Father, that there is no work of the enemy that we need fear because of who you've made us to be. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. Oh, Father, thank you that these things are true. This isn't some fairy tale. Thank you that these things are true. This is reality. The reality of your word. The reality of your word. Oh, Father, I thank you for turning those debt situations around. In the authority of the name of Jesus. These are my people, Father. I refuse to allow them to be burdened with debt. I refuse to allow them to be held back by circumstances. I refuse to allow sickness to take hold of their flesh, Father. You've given me these people just like you gave the disciples to Jesus. And just as Jesus said that he didn't lose a one of them, I refuse to lose a one of these in the name of Jesus. 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 Do you agree with that? Then according to the Bible, it's done. Oh, Father, thank you that our names are written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Thank you that this is based on our relationship with you. Not based on somebody's strength, somebody's power. Not based on somebody's position. Based on our relationship with you. The fact that we are your children. We love you, Father. We thank you so much for your goodness. Show us, Father, who we are. Show us what we have. Show us how to walk in it in Jesus' precious name. More and more and more every day. May the knowledge of our authority and your goodness increase in us every day. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Meditate on some of these things. Take these scriptures and meditate on them. Just don't wait till next Sunday and let's see what else we do or what else we talk about. Meditate on these things. Let these things sink down in your heart. Amen? Amen. God bless you. We love you.